The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored by ALS Goldspot Discoveries. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. My name is Hallie Keevil, Project Geologist at Anglo-American, and I am your host for this week's episode. In last week's episode, you heard about the Yukon Mineral Exploration Program, or YMEP, and how it funds early-stage mineral exploration up in the Yukon Territory. This week, we'll continue with the theme of prospecting, and we can't continue to talk about prospecting or the YMEP program without speaking to Sean Ryan arguably the most famous and successful YMEP recipient. Sean grew up in Timmins, Ontario, and began his career in exploration in the early 80s, working with the Kid Creek Exploration Geophysics team and various other local contracting firms. In 1996, while living in Dawson City, he decided to try his luck as a prospector. He focused his prospecting in the Dawson district, looking for the sources of all the alluvial gold. His research led to perfecting deeper soil sampling techniques. He has been honored with the Yukon Chamber of Mines Prospector of the Year Award in 1998 for the Horn high-grade gold scarn discovery in the Tombstone Mountains north of Dawson City, and with Ryan Wood Exploration in 2009 for initiating what is now called the Yukon Second Gold Rush. Sean received the Spud Houston Award for Excellence in Prospecting and Mineral Exploration from AMEBC in 2010 for the White Gold Discovery. In 2011, Sean was also honored with the Bill Dennis Prospector of the Year Award by the PDAC for his prospecting success that led to the discovery of the White Property, 1.5 million ounces of gold, and the Coffee Project, 4.5 million ounces of gold, now owned by Newmont. During the last 10 years, Sean and his team have been working on developing new exploration techniques, drones to drills, that have dramatically dropped exploration costs. Welcome to the episode, Sean, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Yep, thank you. So I want to start right from the beginning. I know of some of your past successes and your work with Ground Truth Exploration, but how did you get into the prospecting business? And can you talk a bit about how your mushroom hunting turned to gold hunting? Yeah, well, back in uh, Timmins, Ontario, coming out of high school at the mines, uh, especially with Kid Creek, if your dad worked at the mine, you got a job at the mine also. But dad got me a job in the exploration side. So that was kind of fun. And then uh, basically, that's kind of where I learned my ropes for about at least five or six years with these guys. And the fun part about that era was that was a major mining company. And they had an exploration team. So you were working directly for the mine, looking for more ore. That's where I cut my teeth originally in Timmins. And then we went from there. When the super flow through crashed in 89, literally there was 2,500 people out of work overnight in Timmins. Wow. So then we had to figure out a new career. And that's when we ended up migrating west from the Timmins swamps to the mountains of BC. And then we actually went up to the Yukon originally to buy a trap line. And then someone told us about picking wild mushrooms. And uh, we fell in love with picking mushrooms instead of trapping. And uh, we did that for the next eight years. But we kept circling back up to the Yukon all the time because we always started the morel industry up there in the spring. 
And that was a really fun industry. And there was a lot of research and there was a lot of parallels with the, the Klondike gold rush. And, and the idea was if you researched it from forest tree, like forest canopy types and rainfalls and elevations and stuff like that, you could actually, it was a lot like uh, prospecting for gold. And uh, so once we did that for eight years, we could actually establish patterns and find various crops that were in remote areas. So so it was kind of fun and it reminded me a lot of the, the exploration side. But the idea was when uh, in 96, when Kathy got pregnant, we said, well, let's settle down in Dawson City and try our luck, you know, basically as a prospector. But the research that I had did, especially for morale hunting in the Yukon, people didn't really know they existed back in 89, 90. And then by the time 96 rolled around, we could do crop predictions based on you know, the parameters of how hot the intensity of fire and stuff like this. So I learned a lot about science, like applying it to morel hunting. That's what gave me the confidence to actually go looking for gold was if I could predict where morel crops grew that were dormant for hundreds of years, actually predict it within a probably a 10% probability of how many pounds were going to come off of that ridge. Why don't we start trying to look for this, the source of all this placer gold? But what happened was... When I first started, everybody said, no, no, it's all gone. And I said, well, what do you mean it's all gone? You got, you know, 8 million ounces coming out of Bonanza Creek alone. There's got to be something happening here. So they said, or 6 million, I guess that's what came out of Bonanza. So they said, no, no, it's all been eroded. I said, well, if this was Timmins, I could tell you there'd be two head frames. Then we'd be drilling Swiss cheese in between these head frames. Yeah. So that's when we decided to put on a prospector's hat and go for the hunt of gold hunting. But, uh, Inevitably, that was 96. And at that point in life, I said, dear, we moved into an old tin shack because it was cheap. From It was a turn of the century barber shop. That was just pre-Briex. And Briex was, at that point, a good story was selling. And I said, we'll be out of the tin shack in a couple of years. But by uh, 97 in the March, that's when the, the Briex scandal came out. And there went the, the good story idea. <laughs> and we were all, and the whole industry was out of work again. And is this so where the YMAP program? Is this where the well, YMAP program became involved? Well, then, like, really, what happened was the YMAP because we were a broke prospector. Like, they had that program, and that was the, the at that time it was it's still the same program, but there's about three different programs in it for the Yukon. The original one was for a prospector, and that prospector couldn't make any money, but you got ten thousand bucks to finance your assays and gas because we were so poor back then. They were the kind of a lifeline. And it was kind of, uh, it was kind of like the YMAP uh, geologist that actually scrutinized it. And that's what's kind of interesting in the Yukon. You actually had to put in a, a proposal and based on data and mag maps and geology maps. And you had to actually put a real, a, a real good proposal in because you were competing with everybody else, like with the juniors also at the time right. and other prospectors. And they only had so much money. So if, if you wanted to make the cut, you actually had to put a lot of thought into it. It's 80% preparation and 20% execution. But okay. I give my kudos to that YMAP program for, you know, I had to pick up my game if I was going to find anything. So, And in terms of the, the YMAP program, like what do you think is the most valuable part of the YMAP program itself in terms of how it does help early stage prospectors like yourself in this great virgin territory of the well, Yukon? I think the biggest thing, and I still say that today, because I, you know, put in for one of them this year or two of them, is that you have to think. It makes you sit down and think about your target, how to, you know, present your data, your hypothesis that there's something there, because you're competing with other other groups, 
And that's where I learned the art of presentation and map info help and stuff like that, you know, but that's kind of because, you know, if you're going to go do work in the bush, don't work on a, you know, a lousy low probability target. And you had to do your homework before. So to this day, I, you know, every spring you got to do your YMAP. You got to sit there in front of the computer for two or three days and compile your data and your thoughts. Well, you obviously did quite well. Was, was your first proposal that of the white gold discovery ultimately? Like how did that come well, about? How many years of YMAP did it take you to find that one? Like we, the first year, 96, that's where we went prospecting. We didn't really know why. Well, I know why I went there. I went up there because it was, it was about a hundred miles up the river. So it was far enough. I felt that because I'm from the Timmins camp, you have to get away from everybody. So I naturally looked at the Yukon River as kind of the corridor and I dropped this old 1942 cedar strip canoe that we put a motor on the back and we basically boated up the river for a hundred miles figuring, okay, I'm just outside because that's what you have to do actually in the mushroom picket. You have to get way out from the rest of the pickers. So that's kind of what I did is I boated way up this river. Ironically, we were picking mushrooms there in 92 and 93. Yeah, and we just kind of parked the boat at the mouth of the White River and uh, camped there for a month and try and prospected. I really, at that point, still didn't know what I was doing and we were still trying to figure it out. So we were doing, you know, banging rocks, looking for outcrop because there's lots along the river, but then, you know, and taking silt samples and stuff like that. So we didn't find anything, but we spent a month there and the irony is that we actually, uh, we were within 400 meters of the Golden Saddle deposit. So wow. but we didn't know about that until 2002, we came back to the area after tech, ironically, and they had dropped the claims. In 2001, we figured out it's soil sampling. That was the method to hunt in the Dawson district because it's unglaciated up here. It's not like Ontario where you got oak crops almost everywhere quite a bit. Here, there was less than 2% outcrop exposure. So if you understand the exploration odds that it's one in 10,000 or, you know, one in 10,000 outcrop is the discovery one. Well, if you only have 2% outcrop exposure here, what's the probability that 2% has that one in 10,000? So that was kind of a, okay, well, we got to think about this a little bit differently. And then right after the Briac scandal, that's when some of the mining companies said, Sean, gone are the days that you coming out with a quartz name with BG in it and getting everybody excited. We want to see a mineralized system. And I said, well, crap, I'm not even a geologist. So how do I find a mineralized system? Well, it ended up being, the irony was soils actually gave you a good response. And it took about a year to two years. And that was another YMAP on the Lucky Joe project in 2001 that, uh, you know, the GSC came out with some nice mag maps. And that's the nice thing about Yukon and the geological survey here have a lot of good data and I, I really, really do use, yeah and I like I really use the geos as kind of my extended exploration team so I'd be talking to people like Mike Berkey all the time and you know and all these other guys that are out there that are working for the government they give me an idea you know I'd ask them questions they give me an idea and I go back out but how we found out the soils was ironically that was Mike Berkey uh, another guy called Ken Galambos that was in charge of the program that was 9-11 when uh, we, we couldn't even get airborne that day because they shut all the, the aircrafts from flying. But three days later, they dropped me off on the Lucky Joe. We dug pits and deep pits and basically did soil profiles. And actually, that's when we started realizing as you dig deeper, it gets better. So your B horizons weren't the method of soil sampling in here. That's when we said, okay, you, 
So in, but instead of digging pits, we'll just use these tulip planters or soil augers, but they look like a tulip planter. You just took a, a sample as deep as you could get. And your response just went from 10 PBB gold on a B horizon to up to 200 if you're down two and a half to three feet. So it was the aha moment. So that's how basically the hunt began in Yukon was if you had some good silts and creeks, they were good indicators. But really, these ridges and spurs over structure and over magnetic features, yeah, until a point that it just took off like wildfire. And we found the white deposit. That was in 2003. That was a YMAP there that we we're on literally that ridge. Like we found a few spots on that, on that property, on the white gold project. And literally last year, we drilled 200 meters or 300 meters away from where I was in 2003, sitting on the ridge, scratching my head going, ah, yeah, yeah. It was a really hot day and I was almost trying to talk myself out of doing more work <laughs> and going back to the boat. And <laughs> sure enough, uh, I kept going. I kept, no, no, it was a good idea in the spring. Just keep following your idea. Don't back out now. Well, that, that Uli's Ridge is where we made a brand new discovery with white gold. So that's what we we're kind of doing on the white. And then we basically took a recce regional, this focus regionals for the coffee area. And uh, lo and behold, we found the coffee deposit that way. And- like, for the coffee deposit, did you use those tulip bulb planters? Yeah, well? like, well, that was, so that was, so we literally went to where previous operators were there. They had lots of smoke and that's kind of, so they could see the arsenic and antimony, but the gold was very sporadic. And that's why we just walked right up into there's, see where the arsenic and antimony areas were. And we just dug deeper holes with the, with the soil augers and the Eichelman soil augers. And, but they look like tulip planters because they're from Holland. <laughs> And the idea is that bang, 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 like we could see the response was like dramatically, like, well, it went from 10 to 200. And, and that's when we took soils to this whole new height level that instead of taking right. two, two or 300, we would take thousands. And, and how did you come up? How did you come up with that idea? I mean, the, to go deeper and take so many more samples, because that was obviously a very intelligent thing to do. Well, it, it wasn't. It was observation, right? Like, like it was kind of like, that's what I'm saying. Like there was a zinc project and Kaminko flew an airborne over this zinc target. And you had two zinc anomalies, lead zinc anomalies, two basically at, at each end of the project. But Kaminko's data showed the EM anomalies over the zinc anomalies, but it also showed a kind of a banana shaped EM kind of anomaly connecting them, but there was no soils there. Like the, at least the company didn't, they weren't seeing it because they were in the B. But what I actually did is said, okay, well, instead of a hundred in zinc, let's drop it to 80 and 30 in lead, bring it to 18 and contour that. And I could see, oh, it was following the banana shape EM anomaly. So then I literally ran out in the spring and dug holes down five or six feet and sampled at the B horizon, which they were. So that there's an 100. So that's anomalous in zinc. As soon as I went down to the two foot mark, it was 250. To the three foot mark, it was 350. Hmm. So then that meant that all these, all them soil anomalies that they weren't considering anomalous. And the same thing happened for copper. So this was this product of unglaciated terrain. Everybody is normally trained to take B horizons in university, or that's what they're told. So what happened was by 92 or 2002, the Garmin 96s came up. So now you get five meter accuracy with a GPS. Then basically uh, the GIS programs map info. I think it was seven back then came out and I learned that with Kennecott. And then all of a sudden there was the ICPMS had came up, just came out around then. So 
like three or four years before you only you're looking for gold you only had gold arsenic antimony maybe in your package so you were quite selective so that combination of the gis to do multi-variable data analysis and to visually see it and then basically the icpms was cheap gave you all these elements and the gps system that you can now get five meter accuracy of your magnetic structures that you could get from the airborne data. That was the combination lock that pretty well unlocked everything. Before then, you need to have a really smart bush guy that knew how to read topple maps and understand pacing and topple and stuff like that, how to topple fill lines, you know, to build a grid. But now, so now you can man, have anybody. <laughs> anybody yeah, well, so, that's, so that's why we ended up, you know, at the height of the height of 2011, like with Ground Truth, we ran the largest geochemical sampling program probably ever on the planet. We did yeah. 170,000 soils that year with four A stars and 100 people trained. But our training program was a two and a half week training program. You know, historically, soils was uh, it was the lowest guy on the totem pole. He was the cheapest guy on your staff. But your whole exploration program was actually for follow up was designed on that guy. So what we did is we made the soil guy the most important guy on the team. We've taken hundreds of thousands of soils, but the idea is that one soil, like on the coffee, on the latte specifically, ridges and spurs every 50 meters, there was nothing, 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 and one hit, boom, and that hit was the latte. And also, that's why each soil counts. Where do you think the next innovations and prospecting will be? Like, will this involve more quicker, cheaper soil or till sampling, no. physics, drones, something well, else? Well, now, now you see where the drone mark, the, like now Ground Truth is into drones. Isaac Fage and my wife kind of took over from where kind of they got, the juniors were going, well, it's your team all the time. So I'm pretty well arm's length from, from Ground Truth. So they're doing their own thing now. Like, you know, they could contract other companies. Historically, they were my kind of exploration team. But the idea is that uh, Ground Truth now, they've, gone into the drone side. Yeah, it's interesting. Now our drones are leaving. We were the, the ground truth was the first one to have the fixed wing drones commercially in Canada. But in the last couple of years, they've gone into the multi-rotor drones. But we've just now, they just went to a whole new level where they got a drone that could fly around for three to four hours and they could fly out of sight now. So Transport Canada is allowed. We've flown some big programs with fixed wings and you know, your big problem is this pilot uh, fatigue. But now if you think about it, this drone could you just, it's a hybrid with gas and batteries that you just change, swap out the battery and add a little bit more fuel. So you, they could fly all night. So, so anyway, so I think it's going to be a big kind of change. Like now they're loading these things up with basically live, like a radar altimeter. If you want to drape it by 20 meters or 30 meters, like the, the ground, it's doing it on the fly now before you had to pre-program that and now it's actually live. Yeah. So the advancements in the last year and that, but even in, in inversions, like we're back to, we use a thing like an old survey called VLF. It was the survey 30 years ago, but it's near surface. It's works for structure. And that's what I like to work with is near surface kind of stuff. But the idea is the inversions, like of a VLF sector of a VLF survey, it's incredible. Like it looks like a, a looks like an inversion of a, a resistivity. Yeah, and it's it's a university out of Portugal that kind of come up with that inversion. These are like really cool breakthroughs that you know that we apply before we drill. You know, so like you think technological advances will be yeah. The next. yeah, like like the downhole televiewer. Like we brought in 
the RAB, a rotary air blast drill that was around 50, 60 years ago, quite a bit. And then Canada kind of moved over to diamond drills quite a bit. But for a quick hole to know, is there something there or not? RAB was the cheapest. Everybody said, well, that's good, Sean. It gives us chips and it's cheap, but you can't see the structure like we do in the core. Well, we, we ended up putting, and it was us that put it. That's what I, we go to these geeky conferences and there was this, they had downhole televiewers. People knew about it, but they were acoustic and they came up with the optical one. That was a kind of a brand new one about five years ago. Yeah. And we tried it in a rab hole and we said, did anybody, has anybody ever seen a rab? What's the inside of a rab hole? Man, you could actually see the walls. And it came up that it's like virtual core. But the cool part about it is it gets you all the structure. So now you add that combination to the RAB and then you add one more little thing and it's called the XRF that everybody knows about. The XRF is good, but it's only a point source. But because the RAB crushes the sample in, in five foot sections and it's powder, the XRF works 10 times better on the powder from the RAB. So now we add that combination of RAB drilling, XRF in every five feet of the powder and then dropping the televiewer down the hole when we're done in the late afternoon. And then that data is spliced together by about 10 o'clock at night and sent to the main geo's inbox. And the idea is that this is kind of like live feed. You can't see if there's gold there, but you see if there's arsenic and you get all the structure and it's about a third the cost of the diamond roll. So it's not one science. It's a multiple pieces of science that increase your odds, you know, that if mother nature does have economic gold there, you'll find it. And if not, well, you've done the best you could. So do you think these these technological advances and this innovation is why you've been so incredibly successful? Like you're arguably one of the most successful prospectors in the world. So what what sets you apart from other prospectors and what's your what's your secret? Well, this the the big secret is is like we just did Newfoundland. Like Newfoundland was like about a an, I was there in 2015 ahead before anybody was like the crowd really showed up running around testing these deeper soil ideas there. I do a lot of research ahead of time because like we could spend a lot of money doing exploration, but you have to actually have a solution. So before I stake anything, I actually have to come up with a solution to find it. That's a cost effective. That's not going to be, that's kind of why I left the Timmins camp because everything got down to a thousand feet lower. So how am I going to find as a prospector spending time and energy finding something? So. I concentrated more on these near surface, which the Yukon was, and then now Newfoundland is. It's all near near surface stuff. But you actually have to understand the history of the previous guys that were there looking at the ground. And what was their and that's what's kind of cool about Canada. You get these assessment reports. And you know, there's some really good secrets in some of these assessment reports that people miss. So and right. so if you have access, but the surveys are like the key, like the Yukon Geological Survey is, you know. Now, like I can't say enough good enough about it. The Newfoundland Geological Survey is just as good, if not even better, because they have a geochemist on staff for 25 years. They have a geophysicist on staff for 25 years. So having access to that kind of quality of, of data that you need as an explorationist. So a lot of a lot of preemptive work, a lot of like observational science and thinking outside the box. Well, it's like we have a like our like my specialty is really the bush side. Like, you know, like I was a hunter, trapper and mushroom picker, but how do you get data from the ground that's unbiased instead of basically, you know, a geo describing the rock? We basically rather take a plug of powder from that rock outcrop and XRF it to truly know what that rock really is. 
you know, you have to actually see the, the end game plan. Like, how are you going to find that deposit? That's why Newfoundland, it's all structured. So we're just hunting up and down these big structural corridors, you know, and if a guy in 1982 on his PhD thesis that he was mapping noted green schist faces along that fault system, well, that just increased the, the odds, you know, now the tills came in later, well, and the surficial person found a, a nice till anomaly over that green schist faces structure. Now you've got a game plan and then you go and test it out. My job is really to find the thing, light the match, get the fuse going. And once it the drills come in and a deposit's discovered, it's kind of anticlimactic. And <laughs> but now my job is to hunt three ridges over. Let's keep moving here. Right. And that's the so, fun part. Yeah, I guess so. You're best known for your early stage exploration. So, what are your thoughts on on the permitting and at the exploration stage and through to development? Like, are you optimistic or concerned about the path from discovery to development in the Yukon or elsewhere? Well, the Yukon is it, it's going through some growing pains still, and uh, so hopefully, like they're still settling stuff. It, it's we're having problems with the like in Yukon. We have these YESA applications for these advanced programs. The problem they have here is. They don't, uh, you can't amend a program too quick. You can't say, I want to go drill 10 holes. And if I find something, I want to go and drill another 20 next year, 30. So they have to say that we're going to drill a thousand holes over the next five years. <laughs> and then it gets all the environmentalists. Well, you're going to drill a thousand holes. No, we're really going to drill 10 holes. And if we find something, if we don't, we're going to leave right away. So we, that's what they're, they're, they're having a hard time with this push and pull of this permitting world. But versus Newfoundland, Newfoundland is quite adaptable. They actually, uh, the permits are very quick there. So it's a nice jurisdiction to work in there. But, you know, hopefully the Yukon gets their act together here. And they're still going through some growing pains of the Yukon still a virgin country, like, you know, from an exploration point of view. My take is, is the world needs metal like they've never need, needed it before. Absolutely. And, like you can't, like Casino was found over 50 years ago. So, you know, you can't basically find a deposit and put it in production quickly. The exploration people should be allowed to actually go explore with these environmentally friendly methods. You know, you're not taking out the planet doing it. We're scientists. You cannot say in 25 years from now, we need zinc. Please go find it. They say that 80% of our exploration people in our business will be retiring in the next five to six years. And we've never needed metal more in our world, like in, in our time in society here ever, like a hundred years ago, you were happy with an, with an ax. <laughs> right. now, people, so that's why, yeah, like we're just starting to learn our, you know, this whole metal world. And, but that's, what's fun about the Yukon. It's right below surface, things like places like Newfoundland, it's very near surface. So yeah. those are the, those are the last kind of Sebastians for, from a prospector's point of view that you can still go out and make discoveries. I want to know if you have any final words of advice for young prospectors in Western Canada or globally. Like, How can someone take their ideas in the funding to execute them and then have the highest likelihood of success? Well, the biggest thing is, is I put everything in probabilities. So like I had one case where we found a high-grade scarf. That was the first kind of deposit I found. But it was a like a gold, copper, bismuth. Uh, I think it had tungsten scarf. So it had four elements. But the gold wasn't, from a silt point of view, wasn't around there, but the other three elements were. So my take was everybody went to the best gold silt in that valley, but the other three were up at the top end. So statistically, three out of four is better than one out of four, even though it's gold we're looking for. 
So I rank, so I rank that one as better to go up the valley further. So when I'm getting to, and we found super high grain garden right on surface that everybody else should have found. You don't have to follow the crowds all the time. So I kind of rank everything to scrutinize, like, you know, and the world of exploration, of prospecting, the fundamentals are, you know, geology, geophysics, geochemistry, and structure. And if you have all four principles, that's, a, you know, it creates a good target. But if you only have one or two, you know, you start lowering. So, so I guess what I'm getting at is I, I rank everything in probabilities. And then you have to figure out how to, you're going to, how to execute the exploration method on these good targets. Cause if it's too deep, well, you're wasting your time. So that's why I just stick to near surface stuff like that. I could go out with a soil sample, an auger or do lightweight geophysics. I don't need big airborns at the beginning stages because what the job is as a prospector is to tease up that project just enough to get an option deal. Then they could spend the bigger, heavier lifting money in there. Yeah, no, I, for someone who doesn't have a business degree or, you know, a science degree, you have, you're very business savvy and have quite a unique, intelligent view on the scientific method. So I think a lot of listeners can learn a lot from, from listening to some of your your techniques and, and thoughts here. As they say before, or, you know, as I, someone said a long time ago on a conference, this is the only business where the norm is to fail. Yeah. <laughs> so like, okay, so how do we... How do we increase our odds? Because you hope on the assay gods, as I, I call them, that mm-hmm. they'll provide. But, you know, and you got to kick a lot of cans to find some. Then you can't. And this is our biggest problem of, of prospecting and exploration. We get depressed faster than we get excited. So like the coffee was a prime example where we had soil anomaly, nice big one. I had four helicopter loads of geos that showed up there to do a property evaluation. Not one of them had gold. And I said, did you absolutely get no gold? And they said, no, we got no gold. I said, neither did I. All the rocks I sampled didn't have gold neither. So they're going, well, why are you excited? I said, well, you didn't find anything. You didn't find like 0.1 grams. You found nothing. So that means we haven't explained the soil and all. And, but the guy's going, no, no, like we're, we're, we're walking away because they didn't really find anything. But my point was, I'm more going, well, what caused the soil and all? ends up, we just had to dig a little bit deeper. So that was the discovery outcrop eventually that turned out to be. But that's why I like to use soils because if it was just based on rocks, you would have walked away from that target a long time ago. You can't believe just because the last guy didn't get nothing. And that's what I'm getting at. Sometimes they get get bummed out quicker than they actually get excited. But if you believe the data, well, there should be something there. So yeah, data data doesn't lie. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate your time and effort in talking to us for this episode. I'm sure the listeners will agree. Okay, yep. No, no, no. I'll get back to my Newfoundland plotting, plotting. <laughs> <laughs> we were also lucky enough to get in touch with two of the Bjorkman sisters of Bjorkman Prospecting, started by their father Carl in the early 1990s. Today we have Jessica and Katerina here with us, two of six Bjorkman siblings. Jessica Bjorkman has been prospecting since the mid-1990s with her siblings, who were taught by their father, Carl. They have traveled across Canada working for mineral exploration companies, exploring for precious and base metals in remote wilderness areas. They also have their own properties in Ontario and British Columbia. Jessica was an advocate for the prospector through Ontario's new Mining Act and continues to advocate for prospectors. She loves to share her passion for prospecting through courses and short talks for various organizations with the hope of inspiring those with a prospector heart to try it for themselves. Katerina Bjorkman started out prospecting with her family as well, learning the trade from her father alongside her four sisters and brother. In her seven years of prospecting, she formed a deep connection with the wilderness and with fellow explorationists. A growing interest in fundamental geoscience led her to her degree in geology at Lakehead University. 
Following two years as an exploration geologist, she started a PhD at the Center for Exploration Targeting within the University of Western Australia. During her doctorate, she integrated isotopic measurements and igneous zircons with field and geochemical investigations to unravel the cross-mantle evolution of the Western Superior Craton and links to mineral systems distribution. Since completing her PhD, she and her sister Jessica have started Bjorkman Prospecting Incorporated. Together with their team of prospectors and geologists, they provide exploration services that combine field expertise with a conceptual understanding of ore formation to explore for a variety of commodities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica and Katerina. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from uh, close to Atacokan, which is about two hours west of Thunder Bay. Okay. And I'm calling in from uh, my apartment in Vancouver. And how did you guys get started? I mean, what? how did Bjorkman Prospecting get started? Did that start with your dad or did that start before him? Yeah, yeah. I definitely started with my dad. He he actually took a pretty big step. And well, when he was like in his 30s and quit a really good job at Hydro and started doing a few different things and eventually got into prospecting. Jess and I were both pretty young when we started following him around in the bush. And you could kind of say that was maybe like the start of it for us. But like, you know, we would have been super young. How young is super young? <laughs> um, I remember following him around like 10, 11, uh, 12, for sure, like 12, 13, 14. And yeah, especially I'd say the older three of us at the start, Bjorn as well, our brother, we would, you know, just follow our dad everywhere. And we always wanted to be the one like right behind him in the bush. Didn't care, matter if we got slapped in the face. It was like, that was the coveted position. <laughs> That's probably how we learned to walk in the bush <laughs> was... Yeah. Yeah. Following him when we were teenagers and kids. <laughs> nice. And you grew up in Ontario, in Northern Ontario? Yeah. Our family home is in the in the wilderness, in the bush itself. So it was pretty natural to transition from living in the bush to working in the bush. For sure. So what's the backstory there? How did your parents end up in a lake in Northern Ontario? Where are they from originally? <laughs> They're from Windsor, Ontario, and they were like pretty adventurous because um, at the time they moved from Windsor to Atacokan, uh, my dad was still working for Ontario Hydro and they moved up, bought land and literally it was just brush and they cleared it and built their home and uh, raised all of us. So like right from scratch and I, they didn't have power uh, and they didn't have running water or telephone or anything at the very start. Um, then it was pre-cell phones. I just thought it was normal growing up. And then one day I was like, that was actually really crazy they did that. <laughs> but I'm really glad they did. And there's six siblings? Yes. Are you all prospectors? We have all been at one time or another. Right now, Jess and I are still prospecting Carla a little bit. And Ruth and Veronique, are like they have children, young children. But their husbands and them are like, they're starting to do more prospecting as well. So, yeah. But to be honest, none of us thought we were going to be prospectors. We were like, oh, we'll just do this for a little bit. <laughs> then a little bit turned into years and years. <laughs> right. I guess I'm interested in, in both of your paths. Like what, I guess what made you interested in prospecting was your family. But did anyone in the family rebel? And how did you, how did your path evolve to where you are today for each of you? Uh, for me, it was pretty basic. Katrina's is a little more dynamic because <laughs> uh, she ended up going to school and stuff. So she can talk about that. But basically, like Katrina said, like I started prospecting more like because I wanted to work and I was really done with being in a classroom in high school. Uh, and I was just like, I just want to work right now and, you know, I'll figure out what I want to do eventually. 
And maybe about five years into prospecting, I was like, I love this. This is what I want to do. Why, why would I worry about doing anything else? Like, this is what I'm meant for. So, yeah. And you've been doing it ever since? Yeah. And I would say for me, for sure, what drew me in was just like, I love being outside and I love adventures. So even if, if I wasn't prospecting, I would be out like canoeing or walking and hiking or horses, a lot of horses, but <laughs> um, just like just the passion for the outdoors. And then also like the type of people in our industry, just really, um, they're really great people and they're just so different. You have so many, you know, different types of people that you work with. So, and then of course I got to a point where it was just like, I wanted to understand more about the rocks that I was looking at. And a lot of, I just found like my questions just, I couldn't really get answers without going further. So I ended up kind of, that was definitely a big part of the reason that I went and got my geology degree. And then that actually led, and partly through Jess, it led into a really cool opportunity in Australia to do my PhD. And I, I probably wouldn't have done that if Cam McQuaig, who is actually from Thunder Bay, came back and gave like, and he was the, um, the head of the Center for Exploration Targeting at the University of Western Australia. He came and gave a gave a really super exciting talk about you know using tools, mostly isotopic tools, to like you know, target at a very large scale for mineral systems and just the whole mineral systems approach, which we hadn't really been exposed to a lot in in university, was just super exciting. So anyhow, after after that, and then my sister met him like a year and a half later, and there was that opportunity available. So yeah, I just decided to take the plunge and head off to head off to Australia for four years. So how old yeah. were you when you went back when you went to do your undergrad? Like how many years of prospecting had you done previously? Yeah, I'd done seven years of prospecting. And yeah, it was really hard to jump back into the sciences for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, especially like like calculus and chemistry. But it's it's like learning a language and then you know, the first month was like brutal and then kind of was fun after that. Yeah, that's how I felt about my undergrad too. I felt like I was, yeah, learning language for the first two, two and a half years. And then okay. suddenly it all started coming together. All the yeah. words made sense. Courses, you know, aligned with one another. And okay, now things are starting to make sense. Did you have a break as well? Not really. I did a, I did a year of like a biology degree. Um, okay. But awesome. I then realized that I wanted to be outdoors. Like I didn't want a lab job. I didn't want to become... Yeah, I, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to do something that involved outdoors. I also did a lot of canoeing when I was younger. Um, awesome. My family's from Ontario, and I, I used to go to a canoe camp in northern Ontario. Well, not northern Ontario. You're from northern Ontario. It's Lake, <laughs> Lake Tomogamy, what I refer to yeah. as northern Ontario. Yeah. And then I enough. used to work at the camp, and I, I wanted to do something where I could at least be outside, like, seasonally. Yeah. So I took a bit of time off and figured that out and then ended up back, back in Vancouver, went to UBC for geology. And then moved around, got my PhD as well. Awesome. But yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I find geology is one of those careers where people don't often have a linear path to it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And a lot of people don't realize it exists. So I think a certain type of person, it's perfect, like for the, the sort of adventurous person who doesn't need a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> too much yeah. and they thrive in that and then so there's all these people out there when they hear about it they're like oh that's so cool that exists that would be perfect for me so I'm glad you glad you were able to discover it that's one one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about is making people know aware of geology as a career path at, at a younger age because I didn't know about that and then partly with the podcasting too like getting yeah 
getting things out to a broader audience. So I guess a question for for you, Katerina, can what are the main differences that you find in your in your prospecting career now that you've gone through school all the way to the doctorate mm-hmm. level? Like, do you do the same thing you did before? Do you just have different insights? Do you is your job different? Um, like how how was your experience before and after all that education? Right. Yeah, I would say the the key difference is just being like how I approach the work a little bit in terms of like what I am thinking about when I go to a project. And another part for me that's different is just like the excitement for me of new knowledge discovery is probably more exciting than like a new discovery of a mineral occurrence or showing or something that's going to be developed or whatever. That said, so much of what I do like still overlaps with what we do prospecting. I'm part of a team of geologists and prospectors. I still like incorporate prospecting, you know, because I'm out there walking and mapping and trying to figure out what's going on. I'm paying attention to the same things that I would pay attention to as a prospector. That said, there's no way I can do a prospector's job while I'm I'm there. So like you you need prospectors on a project. They just they they do something that a geologist can do absolutely, but like very difficult to do at the same time. And I would say that prospecting you you're just more open um you don't have blinders on typically for things that I do now like I'll think oh like I shouldn't check that because I know that's not perspective whereas if I was prospecting 10 years ago I'd just go check it and I wouldn't have cared you know about what rock type it was or anything I would have just been like well that looks interesting I'm gonna go check it out you know but definitely a lot of overlap just more knowledge to underpin what I'm looking at and a bit of a different outlook in terms of how I'm assessing a project while we're we're in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So do you work for the same company? Do you still both work for, is it Bjorkman Prospecting? Is that what it's called? Yeah. And it used to be just Carl Bjorkman, although we kind of like kind of had a colloquial kind of saying for Bjorkman Prospecting, but it was, it was my dad. So Jess and I kind of just started officially Bjorkman Prospecting Inc., this year. So this is our first year actually operating. And while I was consulting with my dad, like I did work for Rio Tinto, for example, for like a year and a half and did like did a little bit of that more longer term company thing a couple of different times. And do you get contracted to work for other companies? Like do companies come in and say we need prospectors or do you guys have your own claims or do you have a a bit of both? We have both. Like mostly my dad is the one who does well, he does most of the work of keeping our claims up and well, he does all the work of like the on, the new Ontario online system, which can be a nightmare for the individual prospector. <laughs> it's, it's fine if it's a big company and they can hire someone to just sit there and figure this out um, or can hire a claims manager. But for the for the individual prospectors, the system is really difficult to just some of the things are um, they don't make your work easier. So <laughs> so we get to hear my dad have to deal with that stuff. And when staking ended, it became like it went from being ground staking to online staking. That changed a bit. Like we used to go on the ground a lot to stake the claims, us individuals or us kids, sorry. But when that changed, we're way less connected to the properties because it was like it was a way that we physically got on got out on the ground. And it meant like while you were out there, you could still check the rocks a little bit. And it's really hard to spend time on our own properties when you're working the whole summer. And like, if you get a week off, you're too exhausted. You're just exhausted. And the last thing you want to do is go and hit more rocks. It's like, I want to go sit on the beach and enjoy summer and real life, you know? Yeah, of um, course. So yeah, it's, it's hard to do both. But like right now, we're part of properties with 
our dad. And then um, I also, I want to get more claims in BC. I just, I just staked a little bit and I'm hoping like Katrina staked them with me. So we're hoping to do a little bit of work on them, but I would like to get more. And I think it would be fun to do more of that. But all our main income comes in from contract work, like from working for companies. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's really hard to sell properties and we're not really like, I don't know, we're not salespeople. (laughs) We're not good at that part. So yeah, part of this episode series is about the, the Yukon mineral exploration program, like the YMAP grants that they, that the government of the Yukon will give prospectors or companies or individuals can apply for for grants to go prospecting, which is really useful in a place like the Yukon because you typically need a helicopter supported program. And I think the Yukon, if I'm not mistaken, still has ground staking. Um, So you have to get out there. It's quite expensive. Do you know if there's anything like that in BC or Ontario in terms of government incentives to make things easier financially for (laughs) for individual prospectors? Well, I mean, the the only thing I I was able to get the, I was on a committee for the advisory committee for the government when they transitioned. And the one thing I was able to convince them to do was through the Northwestern Ontario Prospectors Association, who were strongly supportive, we were able to get it where when a prospector does work or a company hires someone to do prospecting work, as long as it's prospecting, you get double the assessment credits for that, for the prospecting part. Um, So it's better than nothing, but they also have a program through the Ontario Prospectors Association where they do give you, you apply for some uh, money. And then as part of the deal, you give a percentage of the NSR to them. So it's supposed to be a self-sustaining program. So that's one program. I don't know BC because I haven't really been here long enough to know very well, but I do know Northwest Territories because I do courses there and they have an awesome grant program where they give out, um, I can't remember the amount, but they give out a certain amount of money every single year to prospectors. And basically you need to put a proposal in and explain what you're going to do. And so they actually get really decent work done because people take it seriously. Like they prepare a proposal. And if, if your proposal isn't legit or doesn't look like you have a good idea that you won't get the funding. So it's actually a really cool program. Yeah. It's similar in the Yukon as well. They've got, people have to propose what they're going to do and if you put that much work yeah. into it, you may as well go do something, especially if you get the funding. So yeah, yeah it's really smart because it like that is really important to put the research in and like prep what you're actually thinking of doing. You're more likely to actually follow through. So it's, it's yeah, like, I think they're really good programs. So I guess, yeah, what are the, in your opinion, the limitations that a prospect or geologist working for a company and then what are the benefits? There must be some benefits as well, going solo and not having all the red tape. I think just the costs everything an individual prospector does is out of their own pocket. So like if you go work on your claims, if you're paying for assays, if like that's completely all out of your own pocket, if you're working your own ground, if you go to a convention to try to sell your property, you've got to pay for your own registration, your own hotel fees, like the entire thing is out of your pocket. And it's like kind of upside down because someone working for a company is probably making a lot more money and they get all their expenses paid. I would say like, on that note, though, at least some of the organizations like PDAC and the Cordillera and Roundup, the AMBC, they actually do have some incentives for prospectors uh, presenting. So you still have to pay for your hotel and all that, but at least the booth, they give they give you a good deal, like so that it's 
affordable for prospectors. So yeah. And as uh, maybe Katrina can answer the rest of the question of like, what's good about it. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm talking also just from like a consultant point of view as well, just like the amount of freedom that we have and the variety is pretty amazing in terms of we get to work in a lot of different places across Canada and a lot of different people, different companies with different agendas. So you like learn a lot about a variety of commodities and I guess things stay new and fresh. And it's kind of nice to just to have that freshness every, you know, few weeks, I guess on the, on the flip side of that is that you don't like necessarily often get to follow a project through to like the later stages. But yeah, I would say like just the freedom is, is a huge benefit. One of the biggest negatives I find is just for us, anyhow, like you know, running a company, just like having, uh, if, if you're in a bigger company, you have mentorship, you have opportunities to learn and grow from other people who have, you know, have way more experience. And we get a little bit of that through the people we work through and with, but probably not in the same way that a, a larger company is going to provide those sort of opportunities. But in both cases, like you get to be part of a team, which is really cool. I definitely, for me, like a huge part of the work is just the people that you get to work with. And yeah, people are super important. Do you, yeah. do you get to work together? Do you work on the same contracts or? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. We just came from a job. We were working together. It's super fun to work together. I, it, honestly, it, it really is. Like that's, we've been able to work with our all of our siblings and that's been just awesome. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I yeah. Think it, you all get along? We, yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we, uh, we have strong faith and we believe in like asking God for love because like, I think we're all human and there's times where it's just really hard to love each other. Fair enough, yeah. For each other and that, that's probably why we can get along because- I mean, definitely we have our differences in our moments where it's hard. So, yeah. Yeah, with six siblings, I imagine you don't agree all the time. (laughs) And just to add to you as to like what's positive, because I was talking about negatives for if you're an individual prospector getting your own properties. And the positive side of that is like it's really high risk because you can you can invest in all these properties and like go stake them and work them and then not be able to sell them. But if you do sell them, it's also a really high return. So that's where you get like people getting gold fever and like getting excited about getting rich or whatever. It's, it's, it's not about getting rich. It's about finding something. And when you're actually attached to the claims. So in in the case where like you're working your own ground, it's really exciting because if you find something, you're part of it. So it's really neat to be tied to the ground like that, like tied to the discovery. No kidding. That part's really exciting. You'd be way more tied to it than if you're just working for the math. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you always want to discover th- something. Like mm-hmm. when we're working for companies, it's like that's what drives us as prospectors is you're trying for to sure. find something new. So that, I mean, that's what keeps you going when the weather's terrible. And like, it's like you want to do a good job, but you also want to find something. So it's like end of the day, you're still going to sample this awesome thing because what if you don't get to come back to it? So if you find it, you're like, no, 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 I'm going to take these samples, even if it means I'm an hour late. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the good part of having your own claims and working them. Do either of you have a favorite prospecting story or like doesn't have to be about rocks, you know, people, <laughs> wildlife, some some random adventure. Jess is the storyteller, so she should be there. You know what? The hard thing is like we have there's been so many experiences after a while, like you can't even remember them all. And then when someone asks that question, I can never think of a, an actual story on the spot, right? But I think just meeting people and 
like Katrina had mentioned, our industry has so many amazing people and not just the people we work with in our industry, like the lodge owner at the last place we stayed at. He's so hospitable. He's a fishing lodge and like people come from all over the world and bring their relatives. And like we had a problem on this particular job. We <laughs> we ripped a valve stem off an ATV and we mentioned to the cook that like, you know, we don't know what to do. And we're just, do you know anyone who could help here? Because it's kind of a little community there on the lake. And we're in the middle of nowhere north of Fort St. James on Chuchi Lake. And then she puts the word out. She she knew who to contact or whatever. And we're eating dinner. And at the very end, in what marches like four of the local people. And they're just such classic characters, you know, and you're just like, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> and then by the end of the night, the entire community was standing around chatting in the driveway. And like, you never would have met them if we wouldn't have had a problem with the ATV. And they wanted to help so badly. Like, and they, it ended up getting fixed. But just... It was so cool to stand around with all these people. And that's, those are the moments I love. How many jobs have that element of people gathering together during the job or at the end or whatever? And just, yeah, I, I just think of so many different times in various places across Canada, sitting under the stars and, or, you know, sitting at a campfire and playing together and singing together and just sharing stories. And yeah, it seems like a key part of what somehow ends up always happening on, on the jobs that we're on, which is which is fun. I think our industry is unique, like you mentioned after work, just because it's like this rare thing because you live and work together. People like let their guard down a bit and you get to know someone sooner than you normally would. And not that you're going to be like life lifelong friends necessarily. Sometimes you are, but it, you kind of are almost family in this little environment, this micro environment that lasts two or three weeks or whatever. And then you move on in your lives. <laughs> it's like you get to know someone in a different way than you normally would at work, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure experience that so much faster. Yeah, you really get to know a lot about someone by spending time in the bush with them. You get yeah, to know. yeah, because you can't like you can't hide when you're frustrated no. when you're in, spending that much time with someone, right? Or like or whatever your joys and your laughs and pain and everything. Do you have any individual discovery stories you'd like to share? Well, I'm just gonna say like the the last thing Jess and I found together was pretty exciting. Um, yeah. yeah, we rode on Vancouver Island, mostly following like following up on a lot of things that had already been found, and then yeah, our last day. Okay, can I just like one little clip? It's my 40th birthday, and I'm like, Lord, it'd be really nice if we could find a copper showing together today. <laughs> I was like, it's okay if we don't, but that'd be really cool if we did. <laughs> For sure enough, we find like a, a brand new area with probably like a maybe a half meter of like almost pure, well, a lot of a lot of boronite and you know like a shear and then a bit of a zone around it and everything. So it was super exciting, especially to find it. Like we were literally together and we found it together, which yeah. is kind of fun to find, you know. Usually you find something often by yourself or whatever, but yeah. that's where we were together. And uh, yeah, it was super fun. It was really fun. It like definitely made our day. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, Fortnite's always exciting to find. In oh, the field. Yeah. I think it ran like somewhere around 45% copper. So it was like pretty epic. <laughs> wow. And what about, do you have any advice for anyone who's just starting out on a prospecting journey or wants to become a prospector? I think for sure to just to reach out to people is huge. That was what I was going to say too. Yeah. Okay, yeah, like industry as well as, you know, the government people are really awesome. And yeah. the other thing is just like to read a lot and ask a lot of questions when you are in groups as well as join field trips whenever you can, because that's just huge. Like seeing things in the field is so key. So yeah. that would be my, my advice. Yeah. That's the same as what I had. If you have the opportunity to, for like short courses or going to the PDAC or the roundup in Vancouver, like any of those conventions, yeah. 
You're awesome. I definitely get connected with people. It's all about the connections with people for sure. <laughs> Especially in this industry. Thank you. Um, anything else that I didn't touch on that you want to let our listeners know about prospecting or your journeys in general or one thing I thought of at the start of our talk was just like how it's a bit addictive or not a bit it's a lot it's very addictive (laughs) like because we're at least what we're doing because we're not working in the same project for the same company for like a year or two we're always going somewhere new meeting new people seeing new parts of Canada and then the geology itself you're never going to learn that entire science in a lifetime and so it's just this endless opportunities of learning you'll never be bored and then you're also trying to discover like mineralization you know it's like a big treasure hunt and just the whole thing is addictive how do you replicate that or find another job that can give you that (laughs) but yeah it's a really fun job i think anyone who's worked in this industry would attest to that all right well thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today i really appreciate it it was awesome to get to know you and, and learn a bit more about what you do Thank you. It'll be uh, really cool to see you at a show or something in person and chat. Thank you for joining us on the Discovery to Recovery podcast. I'm Hallie Keevil, one of the hosts of this podcast series. Please join us next week with host Sam Weatherly for an episode on carbonatites. You can access past episodes on segweb.org slash podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. A huge thank you to Sean Ryan, Jessica Bjorkman, and Katarina Bjorkman, who generously gave us their time and insight for this podcast series. This episode was written and produced by myself, Hallie Keevil of Anglo-American, with editing support from Ann Thompson, Aisha Ahmed, Sam Weatherly, and Britt Blumel. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds from their album Confluence. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll catch you again next week.